I also had the privilege this morning of reading our scripture uh, for the sermon, the sermon text today. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through uh, the gospel of Matthew, and we're uh, coming to the end of, of that gospel, uh, looking at the actions uh, of Jesus and what he has done. Uh, and so we'll be in Luke, uh, Matthew 28 today, and I'll be reading verses 16 through 20. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along. If not, um, just listen and receive this text. It says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Good morning. Oh, good morning. All right, that's right. Got that post-Easter blues, huh? So I have a question. Do y'all remember summer vacation growing up? Being a kid, fewer responsibilities, waking up whenever you wanted, perhaps. Having days filled with riding bikes and going to the pool. The school year seemed infinitely in the future. No need to worry. Both of my parents worked growing up, and so when I woke up at age seven or eight, it was to an empty house. And I would usually eat some cereal, probably oatmeal squares or something boring. We didn't have anything good. And I would hang out, you know, wait until 11 o'clock when Price is Right would come on. It wasn't too bad. But there was always something waiting for me when I got up in the morning on the kitchen counter, the list. Every morning before I woke up, my mother would leave a list, and on that list would be my assignments and responsibilities for the day, things like mow the lawn, put out dog food, wipe down the surfaces, clean my room, take out the trash, call grandma, water the flowers, shovel dog poop. That was not my favorite. And every day the list was different, okay, things that were expected of me to be finished by the time that my parents got home. And this was also before the time of cell phones or texting, even before beepers, if you will. So the note served as a final message before my mother left the house. These are the things that I expect you to do. My name is Jacob Beach. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the last four verses in Matthew's gospel, which is often called the Great Commission. And it serves, these verses serve as Jesus's last message, his final message to the disciples in this gospel story. It's a passage where Jesus leaves a final list of what he expects his disciples to do. And in reading and discussing it today, it serves as an invitation to us to join, to join the mission. Jesus establishes the mission of the King. And if the resurrected Christ, whom we celebrate, we celebrated just this past week on Easter, has left his disciples a mission, then we too ought to consider the importance of this, this great commission, and how we can participate in it. 
He establishes in these last few verses what the mission is built upon, what the mission encompasses, and who the mission is carried out by. And those are the three things that we're going to look at today. What is the mission built upon? What does the mission encompass? And who is the mission done by? We will ultimately see that Christ the King invites us to be part of his kingdom work. The last few weeks, we've covered what happens in Christ's final weeks leading up to this point, leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. We had the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the betrayal, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. And our passage today comes about a week or so after the resurrection. The two Marys discovered that the tomb was empty, and an angel appeared to them and told them that Jesus was risen. And the angel tells them to go tell the disciples. Talk to the disciples. Tell them what happened. And Jesus himself appears to the women as well and tells them, hey, tell the disciples, meet me at the mountain. You know the place. You know what I'm talking about. Meet me there in Galilee. So the screen kind of fades to black, right? And then it fades up back to this final scene. The 11 disciples are at the mountain and they're waiting. They see Jesus on his way and they begin to worship him. And at the same time, some of them are nervous, hesitant, and doubtful. And Jesus comes to them and he says, starting in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So let's look at Jesus' first statement there in verse 18. First and foremost, Jesus reminds the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. The resurrected Christ, the king who has conquered death, almost as a recap of everything that's happened in the story so far, says, everything that I came for, the purpose of me being here, from when you first met me all the way until the resurrection, has come to pass. I have accomplished it. All power and authority has been given over to me, the ultimate king. And the true nature, the true nature of Christ's kingship has finally been revealed. A kingship that was introduced by the Davidic royal genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. A kingship that was searched for by the Magi and viewed as a political threat by King Herod in chapter 2. A kingship that eclipses the offer that Satan gives to uh, Jesus to be the Lord of the physical realm when he's being tempted in the desert. A kingship that was dramatically, il- dramatically illustrated by the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in chapter 21. A kingship that was judgmentally alleged by those who falsely convicted him in chapter 26. And a kingship that was mocked by the participants in the crucifixion in chapter 27. It's a kingship kingship that has now been fully revealed, standing above local politics, extending far beyond the Jewish countryside, the Jewish nation of Israel. It's a kingship that is universal over all the physical and spiritual 
realms. The perceivable and the imperceivable. The visible and the invisible. And the Easter that we celebrate every single year was only a few days prior to these disciples. What was perceived to them as an utter defeat has turned into the greatest triumph that they could possibly imagine. The Christ that they had given up everything for wasn't dead, but he was alive. And to hear that reassurance that whatever he had for them on the mountain that day, Jesus was fully in control. He had all the power and authority. Whatever mission that he was going to give to them, its foundation was going to be built on that safety and security of knowing that their Savior, their friend, their Jesus was the one who sits in the place of supremacy. You know, out there, out um, past the parking lot there is a grassy area. It's part of the church property. It's kind of underutilized. And Pastor Mike and I have come around to calling it the grotto, the grotto. Sorry, how do you say it? Grotto? Anyone ever heard that word before? Grotto. Okay, someone's not in great. Amen. Um, but a grotto, unfortunately, is more like a cave, okay? Um, it's, it's not like five trees in a small field, but I like the name. Anyway, man, I'm really getting off track. Anyway, when it's nice out, okay, I love going out there. I love walking around out there. I like to take phone calls. I like to walk around when I'm taking phone calls, so I'll often walk around in that field. Sometimes I've got music on. Maybe I have headphones in, might be listening to something, or, or maybe I just have my phone out and I'm taking some notes while I'm thinking about things. And as, as I've said before in, in other times, uh, I love nature, okay, but I am I'm an indoorsman, not an outdoorsman, okay? There's no camping. There's no roughing it. There's no climbing on rocks and stuff. I like to walk around in a little field in the middle of the city. That's good nature for me. So I was walking around out there this week, and I found a manhole cover. I didn't, like, find it. Like, it was just there. It was a manhole that was covered. And I've never, like, really stood and studied or looked at a manhole cover before. But this time I did. And as I was standing over this sort of metal circle thing, it says Columbus, Ohio, kind of emblazoned on there, right, it just printed right on there. And there's some other like little designs. It's like pretty cool looking, actually. Possible tattoo idea, huh? Uh, but as I was standing over it, okay, as I was standing over it, I was thinking specifically about this passage, because I'd been studying it and reading over it this week. And I felt this sense, I felt this sense of peace and security, because in standing over this manhole cover that was labeled Columbus, Ohio, my thought was that my, my thought was of the one that holds the true power and authority on heaven and, and, and on earth, who stands above everything, stands above everything as a loving and just and ruling king. And the Lord stands above us, above our lives, above our city, above our world, in the midst of unanswered questions of difficult circumstances, of death and decay, of the brokenness in this world. But he isn't wandering around a lightly wooded field. He stands over it. He stands over creation definitively, authoritatively, and commandingly as a conquering king. 
And in the midst of the turmoil in the lives of these disciples, Jesus comes and reassures them. He says, when you feel defeated, when the conditions around you are most dire, remember who is the king. Remember who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And at this foundation that Jesus, it's at this foundation that Jesus brings the Great Commission itself. This is the foundation that the Great Commission is built on. The mission of God's people is built on Christ's authority and power. So let's move on and talk about the specifics of that mission. What is the content of the mission? What does it encompass? Looking at verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Under the authority of Jesus as the king and kingdom of God, he charges his disciples to carry on the mission. They are to make disciples themselves. They are to proclaim and demonstrate. Remember that phrase, proclaim and demonstrate Jesus' kingdom and rulership. The imperative command here is, is charged to them. It is to make disciples. This is the simplest answer to our question of what is the Great Commission. It's to make disciples. Be making disciples. But there are specifics. Alongside this imperative command comes three participial clauses, okay? How's that for a mouthful? And listen, y'all, I am like not a grammar expert, okay? No one's ever confused me for that, but I studied, okay? I'm studied up. I know what I'm talking about. Alongside this command comes three participial clauses. Essentially, these clauses explain the content and give context to the imperative command. Okay, the command is make disciples. But the how is by going, baptizing, and teaching. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Going, going, going. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Go can be phrased as in, as you go or as you are going. We can take this to mean that the disciples are to proclaim the kingdom to those who have not yet heard the message. It's active. It's purposeful. The Lord is sending his disciples out to make disciples of all nations, to cross borders, both literal and figurative. And we, as disciples, who are years down the line from this, are also to go. Whether it's next door, whether it's to another place, we are to go and make disciples. And while we're our We're not all gifted evangelists, right? We have all received gifts that we can use to help fulfill the Great Commission. It also says that we are to baptize, baptize. Now, baptism represents the initiation and conversion to faith in Christ, the passage, the passage suggests that the disciples who were already under the rulership of Christ should be the ones initiating others into faith under that rulership of Christ. And while I think that baptism is very important and exciting, it's an exciting moment in the life of a believer, I think that its presence and usage in this passage means more than just 
simply the ritual of baptism. I think that baptism here represents evangelism itself, front to back. Romans 10 shows us this progression of how many come to a saving faith in Christ. Romans 10, verses 13 through 15, it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Here Jesus sends his followers to preach. That is, to tell the gospel message of Christ. That message is heard and believed before one calls upon Christ for faith. And those who are saved ought to be baptized. Those who believe ought to be baptized. And I believe that when Jesus in verse verse 19 of our passage here this morning calls his disciples to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he's including all of this. This is a call to go and to tell, to tell the good news, to share our testimonies of our experience with Christ, to affirm the truths of the gospel message, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that Jesus mercifully stepped in to be that Savior, purchasing life for those who were dead, and now graciously offers that gift of life to any and all who will call upon his name in faith. And finally, the third clause is teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus charges his disciples, once someone is initiated into the kingdom of God through their faith in Christ, teach them, teach them the way of living in that kingdom. Teach them to obey Christ's teachings. Teach them to become like Christ. The disciples are to build these new disciples into stronger faith by teaching them Jesus' ways. And we Christians today should not pat ourselves on the back like the job is finished when someone becomes a believing Christian. As a community, we need to support one another. We need to teach one another. We need to be in relationship with one another to submit ourselves to the teachings of Christ together. And this is what I believe Jesus is commissioning his disciples and likewise us, his disciples today, to be doing. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, I think that some of us who have heard this passage before are used to the same worn basic explanation of Jesus's command. You need to share your faith more. You need to invest in less mature believers. You need to go to another country and do this as well. And I think for each of us, this is very well, these very well may be appropriate convictions and interpretations of the passage. But I personally prefer to look at the content of this mission, the content of the Great Commission like this. Jesus' mission is to bring about the kingdom and his rulership. And the way that that happens, the way that that happens is by making disciples. We are to proclaim and demonstrate his kingdom and his rulership. 
But what proclaim and demonstrate means to each one of us might look differently. How we make disciples might look different. The methodology can be different. Disciple-making might look like spending your time defending those who experience injustice, those who are in need, going out of your comfort zone, demonstrating the love of Christ in the lives of those who are in need. Though in the world's eyes they are discriminated against, Christ loves indiscriminately. And because we are all made in the image of God, everyone deserves the humanity of respect and dignity. Disciple-making might look like becoming a full-time missionary, going to another place, proclaiming and demonstrating your love and care for the people there by serving them, by telling them the gospel message, by living side-by-side with them, by learning from them, learning their culture, teaching them how your relationship to Christ has motivated you and changed you. Disciple-making might look like investing time in a friend or fellow believer, working together to learn what the Bible teaches, admonishing and encouraging one another, pushing one another towards Christ, towards taking steps of faith, towards getting out of our comfort zones, working together to love and care for those who are outside of our faith community. Christ calls all of his disciples to participate in the spreading of his kingdom in that mission. In his kingdom, under his rule, there is no injustice, no discrimination, no weakness, no death, no brokenness, no strained relationships, no doubt, no outsiders, no unbelief, no hate, no downtrodden, no discouragement. And as long as those things still exist within us and in the world around us, then we strive towards this mission. We strive to work together under the authority of Jesus to graciously and mercifully grow and fight against these things. We proclaim and demonstrate the love that Christ has shown us. We proclaim and demonstrate the peace that Christ has given us. We proclaim and demonstrate the acceptance that Christ has provided for us. We proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom that Christ has secured and brought to us until we experience it in full at his return. Our relationship to Christ as his disciples should motivate us, not to mention that Christ in this passage actually commands it for us to participate in this work. And like we mentioned before, not everyone has the same gifts and passions, But God has given you your personality, your skills, your abilities, your passions. And we can use those things for selfish gain or we can use them to participate in the Great Commission. This mission encompasses the spreading of his kingdom. We are to make disciples, to pass along what we have experienced and come to know. We go, we baptize, we teach in the spreading of his kingdom. And I think just as important as understanding what we are called to is understanding who we are in the midst of that calling. We saw how Christ is the foundation of the king's mission and what the mission encompasses. But what about us? What about the ones who are doing the mission, who are participating in the Great Commission? 
Where do we stand in all of this? If we are just, if we were to end the discussion here, right? If we would just say that Jesus has power and that we're supposed to go and do without understanding where we ourselves fit into it, then I think we're going to be setting ourselves up for failure and plenty of self-condemnation and a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure to perform. The disciples, the, hi, the disciples here, the disciples here aren't necessarily Jesus' elite generals, right? Reporting for duty, sir. We're talking about a group, okay? We're talking about a group that when the crowd came to take Jesus away in chapter 26, it says that the, the, the disciples left him and fled. They left him and fled. And Peter famously after the arrest, is asked three times if he's one of Jesus' disciples, and he aggressively, aggressively swears that he is not. Judas, one of Christ's 12 disciples, was the one who actually turned Jesus in. He sold him out. And he's so ashamed of that. He's so ashamed of his selling of Jesus out that he actually hangs himself. And none of them, none of the disciples go and look for his body. None of the disciples uh, uh, retrieve his body after the brutal crucifixion. They aren't really slick. They're not proper. They're not responsible. They're not mature. They're not really the people that you would expect for Jesus to charge with, you know, the message and mission of spreading his kingdom and making disciples. But here they are. Here they are. If we look back at verse 16, they show up to the place that they were told. And in the next verse, it says that they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus kind of making his way towards them, and they began to worship him. And then comes an interesting little phrase. It says that, but some doubted. Some doubted. Other translations say hesitate or wavered. They didn't recognize him. They were all worshiping him, but... But some of them sort of seemed to not understand what was going on, what was happening. They knew that Jesus was coming. Other gospel stories, including the book of John, give us insight to the fact that some of them were likely in the group who had already seen Jesus resurrected in Jerusalem. So in this instance, they were confused. They were unsure. They didn't know how to 